listening to Into the Void, a Black Sabbath podcast with your hosts, John and Darren. Welcome to Into the Void, a Black Sabbath podcast. I'm your host, John, and I'm here with my co-host, Darren. And for today's episode, we are going to be covering the Black Sabbath album, Live at Last, released in July of 1980 on the NEMS record label. The album is the first official Black Sabbath live album, although I will put official in quotes a topic we will be getting into in this podcast. Recorded over two nights on the 1973 Volume 4 tour, the track listing is as follows. Tomorrow's Dream, Sweet Leaf, Killing Yourself to Live, Cornucopia, Snowblind, Embryo into Children of the Grave, War Pigs, Wicked World, and Paranoid. Although released in 1980, we felt it would be best to cover this album now in our podcast series as it fits our timeline, having been recorded on the Volume 4 tour. The album would eventually go on to be re-released in 2002 on the Past Lives compilation. All right, so Darren, would you like to explain to the listeners out there what is sort of the backstory with uh, Live at Last, it being sort of an official uh, band release, <laughs> live album release? Well, I, it wasn't at the time. Um, and it was only available as an import, although it did find its way into some of the more commercial record stores in the malls and things like that. But it was, um, you could tell it was different. It, well, first of all, it wasn't on Warner Brothers. So Right, right there, you knew that it was on a different label. And no one I, at that time, I, I don't think, was familiar with NEMS records. And also the shrink wrap was really loose. And I remember <laughs> <laughs> looking at it and just, well, actually, the first time I saw it was in the back of a magazine. I think it was like a circus magazine or something. And it was a mail order place that was advertising some uh, import records. And they had like a Who compilation and a Free compilation. And they had this live at last. And I kept seeing it. But yet I never saw it acknowledged in any other Black Sabbath source. I mean, in any other rock magazine, no one was talking about it. Nobody said anything about it. Uh, but basically what it boils down to is they had a split with their, their old management, Patrick Meehan, and, um, which also, as we'll get to later in a couple albums from now, pretty much fueled the subject matter for the lyrical content of the album sabotage but very acrimonious split uh patrick meehan who was associated with don arden who would go on to continue to manage black sabbath as part of that management group and i'm not really sure how it splintered off but don arden would, would continue to manage black sabbath patrick meehan however split off and, and i'm not really sure what the details were i didn't really look that, that far into it but probably the same sort of scenario that goes with any band that splits from their management. There is some misappropriation of funds and things like that. And the band wanted to separate from their management and of course got caught up in a lot of legal hassles and things like that because they probably most likely signed things that they weren't aware of what they were signing. They probably weren't lawyered up properly and management took advantage of them and misappropriated some of their money, which would make anybody angry, you know, as it did Black Sabbath at this time. So what Patrick Meehan did was he went ahead and released this album, which was planned. They were planning a, uh, an official live album. Uh, this was the one that was recorded. The band rejected it. They didn't feel that it was, it was very good or at least not good enough to release as a, as a uh, official live album. So it was shelved. Upon Black Sabbath splitting with Patrick Meehan at some point or another, he decided he was going to go ahead and release it himself through a label that he was deeply associated with, which was NEMS. And there you have it. Uh, it came out in 1980. Um, like I said, it, it, it kind of flew under the radar, but we did see it in the record stores. We bought it. Um, there was no information highway like there is now, so we didn't really know much about it. Although, 
after it had come out and it was in the stores, you know, people started picking it up. And I think there was a couple magazines that talked about it. I remember specifically there was an interview with Tony Iommi in Hit Prater in and around 81. And he does reference it as uh, a ripoff album. Don't buy it. It's not good. It was done without their permission, you know, urging fans not to buy it. Of course, if you're a Black Sabbath fan, you know, you're going to buy it because there it was. So, yeah, I mean, it, 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 it was it was taboo, but, you know, we bought it and, uh, you know, I don't know. I mean, I, as time went on, I mean, it became an important part of the Sabbath discography, but initially it just sort of crept up and took everybody by surprise. I mean, what were your first impressions of it? Yeah, it was, you know, kind of confusion, like you said, because it was never really advertised and even to this day, I was researching, you know, before the podcast and it's, it's sort of confusing, you know, what went on with this whole situation. I, I guess what it was, was is they Sabbath must've signed something with Patrick Meehan that gave him the rights to those live tapes and gave him the rights to the first uh, four albums because as, as we mentioned, uh, Live at Last came out on the NEMS record label, which I think was something that Patrick Meehan started just for the sake of reissuing these Black Sabbath albums. And so you would see these NEMS records of Sabbath popping up in the early 80s and in all the record stores. And it was sort of you know, he must have had the rights to all that uh, early stuff, which is which is really strange. And like you mentioned in in the beginning, that the quality of these things. It's funny you say about the uh, the, the shrink wrap on the outside because I distinctly remember that. Thinking like, what is up with this? The shrink wrap was really loose on it. The the cover was. It was the same thing with all the NEMS albums. The covers, uh, the other Sabbath NEMS. The covers were all like really thin compared to a normal vinyl album cover. The records themselves were made of, I don't know how many grams vinyl it was, but it was not a lot. It was very like floppy and thin feeling. So it was obvious that they were just sort of cash grabs in in a lot of ways. So yeah, live at last, I remember it just, it felt confusing because you didn't hear the band talking about it. You didn't really see it advertised yet. It was in the record stores. Uh, It looked kind of strange because the album cover is, you know, it's, it's not that great of an album cover and you sort of see it and it just looks, it just doesn't look like a live album. And so it's just, it's curious. And if you, if you look at the back of the record, they spell Ozzy's name wrong. It's spelled O-S-S-I-E. So. Yeah. It looks like a, it looks like a bootleg record. And um, you know, I mean, at this, at this time to me, the bands that were releasing live albums, you were talking about, you know, the live albums of the seventies kiss and uh, Frampton and Ted Nugent angel you know when they released a live album it was a double live album it had a gatefold it had all kinds of bells and whistles you know uh there's usually a pretty huge advertising campaign behind it you'd see it advertised in the magazines if not on the back page of the magazine live albums were like a party they were you know a celebration of a band's typically uh three studio albums and then the live album that's sort of how it went i mean i think that was just scenario with Cheap Trick Live at Budokan too. And there's another one that was really popular. So live albums I've always associated with a big production. You know, they don't sneak out. They are like heralded. Here comes the live album and there's going to be a poster and, you know, maybe a couple unreleased studio tracks. They were a big deal. This did not seem like a live album and there was no picture of the band. There was no no shots or anything. Yeah. You know, and it was just aroused suspicion. Like, what is this? (laughs) I mean, at the very least, you'd expect to see a logo. I mean, it was, and that's the band's brand, even though they've had probably about a logo per album, but certainly there was something that you could, you could draw on from a previous album that would make the association a little bit more cleaner, clearer. Um, 
you know, some kind of digital font with a satellite over a planet. Maybe it was Earth, maybe it was the moon. I don't know. But it was, it was, yeah, it was just not very Black Sabbathy. Um, and it was really flimsy. There was no inner sleeve. Like you said, the album weight was really thin and it might even be transparent. I have two copies of it. One was one is a Fran uh, French coffee and the other is the UK. But even a picture of the band um, was missing. And it's just, just sort of strange. You, you talked about NEMS as, as possibly being something that Patrick Meehan uh, used as a vehicle to release these albums. And, and um, he, you know, it, it's weird. I, I really tried to figure out what was going on with these record labels at the time. It all started with Vertigo. And then it went from Vertigo to wwa which was what sabbath bloody sabbath was released on and then it went to nems nems first entered the picture and i think it's really just i think vertigo wwa and nems were all associated with their management um i don't know how i don't know exactly how they intertwined but there was no different record contracts or anything it just each album like the first pressing of the first Four albums was on Vertigo, and then Sabbath Bloody Sabbath came out on WWA, which was basically a pre preliminary version of NEMS, and the first pressing of Sabotage was 1975. That came out on NEMS Records. Subsequent mm -hmm. pressings were back on Vertigo again, but there was something where Vertigo was like, the record label imprint was put on hiatus, and in the meantime, to keep the ball rolling and keep releases moving they went through these other subsidiary labels and, and i believe wwa was a, a subsidiary at a particular point in time and also the bands that were part of the management uh company that, that patrick meehan and don arden were were taken care of were gentle giant caterpillar some of the other bands that were previously on on Vertigo also ended up on WWA for that their releases at that time, as well as Sabbath Bloody Sabbath. So, so NEMS Records was something that Patrick Meehan was associated with, but I don't think it was like a covert operation to, you know, develop this record label only to release these these questionable albums. And the other questionable album that came out, I think, was uh, Black Sabbath Greatest Hits because that came out at around the same time. That was the one with the Hieronymus Bosch album cover. Yeah. That was also like oddly packaged with the you know, the the, the, the uh, yeah. loose heat shrink or uh, shrink wrap and um, no logo. I mean, it's pretty cool in retrospect, but at the time it was very similar to um, Live at Last. And the, I mean, is this official? What is this? Yeah, and, and the, the other the other one from that label that used to be at my record stores was those Attention Volume One and Attention yeah, yeah. Volume Two Greatest Hits things. Those were NEMS too. So there was just sort of this, like well, you just said, there's this really confusing, like tangled yeah. mess with the Sabbath, uh, with the labels, with who was distributing what, and and I get the impression that there was just. Uh, you know, Sabbath's early days, they, maybe they, they legally, there was, it was just sort of a, a mess. And, yeah. and this is why the band maybe got stiffed out of a lot of their early money because there was just, maybe they signed too many contracts or things just got all jumbled up and confused. And that's, and that comes over to the, to the fan when, like you said, you walk into a record store and you're sort of seeing these albums and you just, you know, it, it feels like there's something unofficial about these things, yeah. but they're there. And so you're sort of like, all right, well, you know, you yeah. just take it for what it is. And they knew that. And I, I'm not really clear as to why they, they decided to make them. So, I mean, obviously they pressed a lot of them because, I mean, they were sold all over the UK, all over Europe. And then they even made their way into the United States. And there wasn't anything that was hard to find. I mean, I remember going into uh, the record store in the mall, like I said, and, and there it was, you know, along with all the other albums on Warner Brothers. You know, you couldn't find any Vertigo albums in the record store, but yet you could find this and you could find that that greatest hits album on NEMS. And then later on, as 
went further into the 80s, then all these other NEMS versions of the album started popping up. I remember I got a NEMS version of Sabbath Bloody Sabbath, which sounded pretty good. Um, it was louder than my Warner Brothers version. At that time, I didn't have the first pressing, the WWA version, but I had this NEMS version with the gatefold, and that was pretty cool. And that was another one that I got. But, I, you know, you, could, you couldn't find any of the other previous UK releases or yeah european releases but all of a sudden somehow they got the distribution i didn't realize that the nems albums went all the way up to sabotage what about technical ecstasy and never say die were they ever later on they were but sabotage the first pressing the, the very first pressing is on nems wow I didn't know um, that. and their subsequent pressings where you the, one way to tell is the, the the nems logo is made of the little dot little white dots against the back black black background but on the on the first pressing of sabotage, you can see at the bottom, uh, it says 1975 copyright 1975. Subsequent pressings had almost the identical label, um, but it had the copyright 1980. So they pressed a lot of them in 1982. And I think 1980. Here, here's what I suspect that that it was until there, there was some confusion. There was some something going on with Vertigo. Vertigo sort of went defunct or was caught up in some sort of litigation in and around 1973. And then it switched to WWA. And then from WWA, it went to NEMS because WWA was the first pressing of Sabbath Bloody Sabbath and NEMS was the first pressing of Sabotage. After that, vertigo came back so i think there was there was a period of time where maybe there was like a cease and desist for whatever reason maybe they're you know these guys that were part of this uh, management team when they were i know patrick Meehan split off with don arden or don arden split off with patrick Meehan, but maybe because of that uh the parting of the ways there were some legal things that held up releases on vertigo until things were sorted out so as not to disrupt anything that was in the pipeline it just kind of got filtered into these other labels which were more or less subsidiaries of vertigo they were only released they were uk imprints um and and nothing remained or, or nothing changed in the u.s because everything continued to come out under warner brothers uh you know volume four warner brothers sabbath bloody sabbath warner brothers um nothing changed there but in the uk there was there's some strange, strange things going on with labels. Yeah. yeah. First time I think NEMS records made an appearance was the first pressing of Sabotage. That that was first issued on, on NEMS records. Yeah, interesting. And I think it's what's what's unfortunate is like you mentioned earlier, the 70s was the era of the live album the double live album, so many bands like that you mentioned, they, their career defining it's some of some, for some bands, it's, it's their career defining moments, strangers in the night or, or it could be an album that, that, that launched the band's career, basically kiss alive. Uh, and it's really a missed opportunity on the part of black Sabbath that they never released a official you know, we'll, we'll, uh, a sanctioned by the approved by the band mm -hmm. live album. And if they had done that right around this time, the, around the volume four tour, or maybe a, even a little bit later, if they had had an album out after volume four, maybe a live album out after sabotage, you know, it makes you wonder if they, if it was really nicely packaged, really well recorded, because although as much as I, you know, when I got live at last, uh, I was into it because I had never heard any live Black Sabbath at that point. I had, I, I think I had gotten it around the time of Live Evil. So maybe I had heard Live Evil at that point. I, I, I can't remember. I got it pretty early on. So probably like 82, 83. And uh, so I certainly had never heard live Ozzy with Black Sabbath. So I was totally into it. Uh, it, it, the pa packaging aside, uh, I could tell that the, the quality of the recording was, it didn't sound as slick as some of the other live albums I was listening to at that time, like exit stage left or, you know, whatever else I was listening to. Uh, but I was just excited to hear live Sabbath with Ozzy. And uh, 
I think the set list is is really good. I was excited that they played stuff from that much stuff from volume four. I was they even play uh, Killing Yourself to Live, which would be come up on the uh, Sabbath Bloody Sabbath album. So so at the time, I, I you know, I was I was into it. I dug I dug the fact that uh, the whole album has a real like sludgy feel to it it's 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 kind of lo-fi it doesn't have a lot of high end it's real kind of dark like they're tuned their guitars are tuned down at this point so when they go back and play stuff like war pigs and paranoid and uh uh war pigs and paranoid and wicked world those songs sound sludgier because they're tuned down lower than they were on the original recordings yeah. so i just remember thinking like how thick like iomi's guitar sounded on this whole recording you know and it's like i love like before practically every song right before iomi starts to riff there's like a feedback squeal (laughs) like (laughs) Like his guitar is ready to explode you know and he just has a millisecond like he turns his volume on and that millisecond before he hits the chord it's like the guitar is like a screaming elephant On, on just about every song, yep, that that's like, yep, that's there. So the guitar is just super sludgy on it. It's it's you can't really hear the bass, and I mean the drums are there. It's it's a little bit of a muddy recording, but Ozzy sounds, I think, pretty good on it, all things considered. And the set list is pretty cool. So as a, as a twelve year old me, I was. I was totally into it years later when I started thinking about it, I was like, you know, man, I wish they had, I appreciate it for the diff for the unique set list. I'm glad that that was captured. Uh, but it just makes me think, man, if they could have just released a, uh, an official, uh, really official, uh, live album during from that era, it would have, I think it could have been something really special. So. Yeah, well, the set list is kind of chopped up because they, they put it all in one album. Uh, you notice there's no Iron Man. Iron Man was a staple of the live set. Uh, Paranoid's in there, but it's after Wicked World. And it just kind of like slides into it. Um, so it really wasn't an accurate representation of what Black Sabbath were doing live. It would have been if they had you know, taking the album in live sequence and made a double live album. They tried to get it all on one, one album. So they took things out of sequence and it was culminated from two shows. So they kind of mixed and matched and I guess, you know, trying to balance out both sides of the album so that one wasn't, you know, more compressed than the other. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's not a bad recording at the time. I thought, it didn't sound like any other live album that I heard. I mean, it was a noticeable um, lower quality than anything else I think I'd heard. Uh, and I wasn't really familiar with live bootlegs and things like that. I'd sometimes listen to the King Biscuit Flower Hour and I'd hear the FM live broadcasts and stuff, but they were usually pretty clear. And this was sort of similar to that. Um, but as far as like buying a, a live album, taking it home, yeah, it was it was suspect. It was strange, but it was cool. Like you said, it was the first time I'd ever heard Ozzy era Black Sabbath live. It's just a shame that it had to be in this form because it could have done so much more with it. Um, I I don't even think this is really a soundboard. It doesn't really even sound like a soundboard recording. It almost sounds like a really good audience recording. And it could be soundboard. I, I think it probably is because. Patrick Meehan was in possession of it. So I think that intent was to record some shows for a possible live album, but upon hearing it, the band decided that they didn't want to use it because they didn't like it. So it probably was a soundboard. It probably was professionally recorded. Patrick Meehan was also a quote unquote record producer too. And I think he was like the executive producer. I don't have the records in front of me to like really tell, but I think he was also the executive producer of a few, few of the Sabbath records. But um, he threw it, obviously threw it together and put it out, probably as some way to recoup some of the money maybe that he lost, uh, defending himself in the legal battles that were going on at this particular time. And uh, obviously nothing was ever, um, there was never a cease and desist with this. So he probably, they probably did sign something that gave him permission to do it. Um, the fact that it wasn't more developed probably had a, 
more to do with him not being involved with the band, uh, maybe the band not really having any uh, say over what really happened with the packaging or, or anything. Uh, but then again, from what I understand, most of the time when a record label put a record out, especially in the case of Black Sabbath, they would only see the album covers after they came out. Maybe they might <laughs> see them when they were shipped to them. So I don't know. It, it, it's it's strange. But uh, yeah, you know, uh, it, it is what it is. And, and I think over time, we've really grown pretty affectionate toward Live at Last. You know, I, I've seen some bands, you know, bands will sometimes, modern bands will sometimes take an iconic album or an iconic visual from, you know, a very popular band. There, there's at least one band in the stoner dune genre, I think, that took the font or maybe the cover. I think it might have been High on Fire or Sleep or something and did a mock-up of their own version of Live at Last. So, yeah. it, it, you know, it, all those things that were sort of odd and and kind of alienated us from what this album really was have over time become, you know, we've had sort of an affectionate attitude toward it. Uh, you know. Yeah. And it's, it, it, like you said, it, uh, I'm sure it must've been a soundboard recording, but it has a very distant uh, feel to it. And everything is like I mentioned earlier, you, I mean, the, the, you can't really hear the bass guitar. There's tons of, bass frequency on the recording yeah. but you can't really distinguish what the bass is doing it really feels like you're kind of at the back of a hall you know hearing this you can't really hear the crowd it's it's not like on kiss alive too where the live crowd is swirling in and out of your speakers when you're listening to it so. no 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 there was there was no real engineering done with it and i think what probably happened was it was just mixed down from the soundboard and, uh, and that's what they worked with. I don't think they could go in and I don't think it was a multi-track master where, right. you know, he could you know, go in and, you know, adjust the levels, but certainly the bass is curiously low. It's audible, but barely drums don't have enough. Um, they're EQ'd on the higher end. You can yeah. hear them, but, uh, yeah, they don't, don't sound that great. Uh, Iomi's guitar. Yeah. It's there, as is Ozzy's voice, and those are the two things that you hear most prominently when you listen to it. But yeah, I mean, no, I, I can see how the band wouldn't be very happy with it being as a, an official release. But um, in addition to that, I mean, it, it, they're pretty sloppy. You know, there's probably better performances of some of those songs on different nights that they, they would have probably preferred. Yeah. Like for instance, in War Pigs, the last verse, Ozzy, he he repeats the I think the second yeah. half of the verse, he just repeats the end of the first verse. Like he doesn't even do the whole state laughing spreads his wings thing. I think he repeats. I, I think that's it. Or somewhere in that song, he, he like repeats some some of the lyrics. And yeah. but what is cool about it, I, I remember when I did get this. One thing that I did really enjoy about it was Wicked World. Yeah. where they do this big extended version of Wicked World and inside yeah. it you get a guitar solo, you get a drum solo, you get, they play a little bit of the intro riff to uh, Into the Void. Mm -hmm. They play this secret uh, Black Sabbath song, if you want to call it that, Sometimes I'm Happy. Yeah. yeah, which for people that maybe haven't heard it, it's really just them sort of jamming on sort of a bluesy well, you know, riff and Ozzy riffing some lyrics over the top of it. But as a, as, as a kid hearing that, I was like, wow, this is like really cool. They, they play a little bit of Supernaut, uh, uh -huh. you know, so, so Wicked World is, is, is pretty cool. And it's slow, man. It is like, I think, maybe even a little bit slower than the, the studio recording. So it's like a really slow, dirgy uh, version of the song. And it's a pretty cool jam out section there that they, that they have in the middle. So that felt like kind of a unique, special thing about this, this recording. Oh, definitely, yeah. Yeah, that, that kind of extended, you know, uh, our perception of Black Sabbath at that time as being an album, you know, a band that puts an album of, of songs together. This is like, we gave you, you know, an insight into like what a live set would be like. And they, they could do Wicked World and then go on and jam and, you know, drum solos and some guitar solos. And then, you know, this little jam segment, sometimes I'm happy jam, which I don't know if you've noticed, but the, the basic uh, 
the part where the, the verse is, is, is really the end of um, Symptom of the Universe. Yeah, you're right. The mellow part. I never thought of that, yeah. Yeah, so I mean, that was kind of like in development and they probably took that and something that Iomi was, I mean, they would do that. I mean, you know, uh, l- listening to some of the, the bootleg recordings over the years, if Iomi had a, um, a riff they would sometimes incorporate it in a jam part. Um, yeah, like Rock and Roll Doctor, I remember. I yeah, think it was yeah. around the Sab- yep. what he said, a Sabotage Tour during his solo section. He would play that sort of main riff to Rock and Roll Doctor, and they would yeah, groove exactly. on that for a little bit. Yeah, so that was something that, you know, made this special. And, and some of the versions, like the version of Paranoid on this and Children of the Grave is really like high energy and upbeat. And I, yeah. I, I kind of, I mean, Paranoid just, man, just rips. I mean, it's already a short song, but this just rips by. And I love the way Ozzy introduces it, you know, with, what do you want to hear? Yeah. What do you want to hear? Well, okay, we'll see what we can do. We'll see what we can do. And then Naomi comes in and slides into the guitar. Yeah, right. Like, it's just Yeah, it just builds up, yeah. I know it's very cool. I mean, yeah, it has its redeeming value, but uh, <laughs> the only thing that really kind of sinks it is that, uh, like I said, it was a missed opportunity to make it more of a a better package and uh, tweak that sound a little bit. But I mean, you know, but Ozzy's dialogue, man, even before War Pigs, come on, if you want to stand up, do it, man. Let's go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I love in Wicked World right before I only solo when he just. Tony! <laughs> Tony goes into his thing and yeah. So. yeah it, it, it brings you into the atmosphere of a live show and especially that that whole Wicked World extended version definitely does that. So, I mean, it, it's not without merit. And I, I think the band obviously finally realized that, that it had become, even if it wasn't officially part of their discography, the fans considered it part of the discography. It was something that they, even though they tried to kind of shut it down, it was something that kind of followed them. And Ultimately, they, they just sort of embraced it. And they said, oh, okay, all right, all right. So we'll acknowledge this. We'll make it part of our discography. But we're going to, like, remaster it. We're going we're gonna to dress it up a little bit so it sounds better. And then, hence, Past Lives came out, which uh, I prefer the original. Oh, and, and before we get there, though, um, before Past Lives came out, Castle did a reissue. Those Castle reissues, the yeah. UK... Those are really good, and they did, they did give that a shot in the arm. Um, that that castle remaster of Live at Last does sound a, quite a bit better than the than the uh, Nems version. But that's yeah, working that, toward the, yeah. that's working toward the the past lives thing. But yeah, I remember when I first got I got all those castle reissues and um, and. and well, they're all CD, so the sound is sort of compressed a little bit. But those are actually taken from the Vertigo Masters. So there are there are differences. If you listen just in the CD realm, if you listen to those Castle Remasters versus the Warner Brother CDs, you'll notice a difference. There's there's a wider range of dynamics, I think, and, and there's other subtle differences between those Castle Remasters. But um, the Castle Remasters were official, and they included live at last so i think you we can't really say that it wasn't until past lives that the band um embraced it it was even before that i think those castle remasters came out in like 1995 if i'm not mistaken yeah i'm guessing that at some point the band again somehow patrick meehan through some legality owned the rights to these things and the band somehow got the rights to these back because when they finally did acknowledge this whether it with the castle remasters or when they put it out on on past lives you know they eventually and they're going to be uh there's uh volume four deluxe box set there's going to be other songs from from those two nights uh, apparently a couple of them that were on live at last and again the rest uh unreleased stuff from the two shows that they that they did. So they must've somehow at, at some point reacquired the rights to, uh, to that stuff. So, so it falls in this, it reminds me a little bit of like Jimi Hendrix. Jimi Hendrix has some albums that are, they're official in the sense that, well, they're not bootlegs, but they're just because of some weird legality that some manager or somebody at some point 
that had some association and signed papers with Hendrix got the rights to some recording and yeah. And that's here. And although I would say, you know, the past lives version, I don't think is, is really, I, I listened to the original NEMS live at last and I listened to past lives and it didn't sound, it sounded a little bit better, but it isn't, they, they clearly don't have any kind of master tapes or anything. It sounded like they just added, they EQ'd it a little bit, gave it a little bit of. Yeah. I think it just ran on the top just, or something. Yeah, I think they just did like a, like a, ran it through a, uh, an EQ. I, I don't think they had the original masters. Maybe they even worked from a CD or, or maybe, you know, maybe they did have the vinyl acetate or something, but um, no, there wasn't a lot of, not a lot of difference. Uh, didn't they dub in a different audience during that? Or was that the other part of it? I don't have it in front of me and I haven't listened I to it. I don't think so. I, I don't know. I didn't, I wasn't really paying attention. I didn't notice, but, but you know what? Some of this is, is, is Black Sabbath's fault too. They, they should have, I mean, I guess it's tricky. They, they should have released something in the seventies. We already talked mm -hmm. about that, a live album, but in the eighties state, they could have, they could have released, I mean, past lives came out in 2002. They could have released something sooner. Uh, I don't know, but this is what happens when you leave a void like this and, and people want to hear something live from that era and and i guess if you read the stories live at last sort of at least according to uh wikipedia this forced them made them feel pressure into releasing live evil yeah which you know i don't know maybe that's true uh you know i don't know but uh you know yeah, Ozzy's yeah. speak of the devil comes out right at that time also well and yeah. Well, Speak of the Devil was, well, we've talked about this before, but Speak of the Devil wasn't planned to come out on its own uh, initiative. It it came out because Sharon knew that Black Sabbath were releasing Live Evil. So they quickly uh, changed the game plan and wanted to make sure that Speak of the Devil came out before Live Evil. It was definitely an aggressive move. And... Um, yeah, and then it, it further added some fuel to the fire between the two camps, the Ozzy and the Sabbath camp, which I think, you know, at the root of that all was pretty much Sharon and Don Arden. Don Arden was still managing Black Sabbath, and Sharon was managing uh, Ozzy, and uh, Sharon and, and Don had, you know, their, uh, some bad blood between them. But, yeah, I, I did hear that. I think I read it on Wikipedia, too, that I think through the success you know, modest success of live, live at last. I think they realized that, you know, a live album would be a good thing for us to do. So then the agenda was to put live evil out. And then once the word started going on that, you know, Black Sabbath's getting ready to release this live album, Sharon caught wind and boom, Speak of the Devil came out all Black Sabbath songs. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I mean, if I, I have a, you know, my choice to listen to Live at Last or Live Evil, I'm probably going to go with Live at Last. I mean, that to me, and maybe this is kind of, I mean, I, I love the Dio era songs that are live on that, but um, I never thought that Dio could do the Ozzy songs very well. So um, I, I think there's a place for both live albums live evil and live at last to exist together in perfect harmony <laughs> um the live yeah, and representation of the ozzy era and and live evil is a representation of the dio era yeah in and uh you know with with hindsight and everything i it's it's i'm i'm glad live at last is there because it does capture some unique things killing yourself to live with some alternate lyrics cuz it hadn't been released yet cornucopia yeah that's not something that they played live really after this tour uh sweet leaf tomorrow's dream wicked world which we already talked about so so you do get some some unique uh some unique songs on there that as we've seen with the last so many uh, live Sabbath albums that they put out in the last 10 years, 15 since the reunion, you know, the set list is kind of, you're, you're not getting a lot of surprises in those set lists. You're getting all the fairies wear boots and Iron Man and 
all that stuff. So, so it's good that live at last is out there. You, you at least you, you have some of these songs recorded uh, from this. I'm, I'm curious when the volume four box set comes out to hear these versions, to hear if sonically they're any different, to hear if the versions are any different, if there's any songs that weren't on live at last that land up on, uh, you know, in the box set or. Yeah. I haven't seen the full track listing yet. I'm not even sure if it's out there. I've just heard, I've just seen the content, but you know, what's interesting to me is that, so this, this Patrick Meehan thing, this conflict came about, I, I guess you could, well, this was released in 1980. This concert was recorded in 1973. When did the band actually have a falling out with Patrick Meehan? I wasn't able to find that. But I know that there's there's that Asbury Park concert, 1975, and I, and that that live recording, which is a double live CD, um, the entire set was recorded, and it's been since transferred to vinyl on one album, so that it's there's some songs that were cut from it. Megalomania, I think, is one of the songs that was cut from it. Yeah, bummer. Yeah, some of those songs ended up on past lives. Right, Megalomania. Yeah, yeah. Was one of them. Which is great. Wasn't that, that a radio a, broadcast, or was that just a soundboard recording? I don't know. I don't, I don't know. Um, it, 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 I think it was just a soundboard recording. I don't think it was ever broadcast on the radio. If so, it would have been part of like some King Biscuit Flower Hour type. Yeah, because it is a really good quality. Yeah, and recording too. I mean, Ozzy's voice is spot on. And there's a lot of clarity to the sound. Um, it, it could benefit from a remaster, but performance-wise and just raw recording, it, it sounds better than Live at Last. So my point is, why didn't they opt to use that? And actually, I shouldn't say they, I shouldn't say Patrick Meehan, if he was in possession of this at that time, which maybe the split occurred before this was recorded. Um, but it's curious to me why, if he was a manager of the band up to this point in time, why he chose to use these shows. They're certainly not the best performances from that era or before. Um, but, you know, I mean, maybe he just sort of reached for the, the closest thing that he had and this was it, rather than really trying to, like, you know, delve into, you know, better performances or better sound quality or, or something like that. And he just reached for the first thing that he had and this was it. I don't know. But I mean, as far as, a, as the Black Sabbath Ozzy era releasing a live album to capture that, that era, certainly that, that 75 concert would have been really, really good. Yeah. That would have been the one to release. The set lists were great at that time. Ozzy's voice was was really good on that tour. So that would have been sort of the perfect time. And and they had sagged a little in sales around uh, Sabotage. So a really good live album, I think, could have maybe put them yeah. back on track. And uh, yeah, that's, that a, that's a good point. That's a really good point because that was part of what was ca causing some of this strife. And I think as we're really initiated the split with the management is their sales were starting to diminish for whatever reason and probably because they just weren't being managed properly um i mean i wasn't really an avid well i wasn't a, i wasn't a fan of black sabbath at all in like in the mid 70s they didn't cross my radar until late late 70s early 80s but uh it'd be interesting to to talk to somebody that was um a big fan of sabbath and see maybe maybe their whole you know, I mean, I have some issues of Cream Magazine over here that uh, there's some interviews and things, and there's obviously some advertisements for the album, but I don't know. I mean, maybe the management just sort of like moved on to other things that they thought were more important, and Black Sabbath kind of fell through the cracks because they definitely needed some kind of a boost in around that time. Um, e even just looking at Black Sabbath records that were available at the record store in the early 80s, you would you would always see paranoid you'd see master of reality you'd see um sabbath bloody sabbath but sabotage is a little harder to find technical ecstasy was a little harder to find um you know basically the ones you saw were the ones that <clears throat> had the most of the radio hits 
Um, Sabotage was one that I actually, it took me, that was one of the, the later Ozzy era records that I got because it was harder to find. And I was really happy when I found it because I thought the cover was so cool. You could actually see the band. It was the only album where the band yeah. was cover. And uh, it just looked kind of very cool with the, with the Black Sabbath Sabotage, the, you know, the mirror and the band dressed up kind of funky, especially Bill Ward. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, I think there was definitely something going on from the business aspect, from the management aspect, because Black Sabbath seems to have gone like lower, lower profile in around the mid seventies. Could have definitely benefited from a, a push like a live album, like a Kiss Alive, Black Sabbath Alive, and uh, and it was in the, in the time the climate was right for that. I mean, people were buying live albums. I mean, they were like we we talked about a little while ago. I mean. Frampton comes alive. Nobody, nobody really cared about Frampton's studio albums prior to that. Nobody really cared that he was in Humble Pie. It was that live album that made him a household name. It was one of those live albums, like Live at Budokan, Cheap Trick, same way. I mean, that was these two albums were the first albums that really made people aware that these bands existed. If Black Sabbath was in somewhat of a slump at that particular point in time, certainly putting a live album out, Black Sabbath, garnish it with logos and and all kinds of graphics and man they could have just dressed that thing up warner brothers would have probably made a killing off of it um and it could have made it as attractive as anything else that was being released at that time and, and really like pulled in a lot of new fans i don't know why they didn't do that but well they didn't <laughs> so here we are talking about this live album that just kind of snuck out. Yes, the mysterious live at last and all its uh, sort of uh, shrouded history. <laughs> you know what I mean? It, it, it's these cheap trick. I, I don't think any of their, their studio albums really. No. I don't think they really did anything. But when Live at Budokan came out, oh, my God, it was huge. Yeah. But the same thing with, with Frampton Comes Alive. I mean, that was another one. Like, I don't think anybody was buying Frampton's studio albums. When Frampton comes a lot, and it was a lot of help from FM radio too. So, yeah, uh, whoever the powers that be were really missed an opportunity to to capitalize on the Black Sabbath name and and some of the hits that they certainly had at that time. And Paranoid was a big hit. War Pigs, pretty big hit. You know, Sweet Leaf. I mean, it's a shame. For sure. For sure. All right. Well, uh, any other last final thoughts on Live at Last? Speak now or forever hold your peace? <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't think so. I think we pretty much covered it. Um, I, I, if, somebody, if somebody went came to me and said, is it worth getting? I would certainly say, yeah. I, I would say it, it is. And I think for some of the points that we covered, definitely that version of Wicked World is something that everybody has to hear. If you're a Sabbath fan and you have all the records except for Live at Last, you need to hear it. And, uh, you know, I mean, it definitely captures a period of time where Savage was really, I mean, you know, that was pretty much, I guess, the mid of the Ozzy era. And that's it's important. You have a young Ozzy building it out. And yeah, I mean, I think in retrospect, it, it's a pretty important album to have if you're, Black Sabbath fan. Yeah, I would put it like if you're if, if somebody came to me with the same question, I'd say if you're a fan and you have these studio albums, then you definitely need to get this. I would not put it like if somebody came to me and said, I've never heard any Kiss albums before. What do you recommend? I would tell them to get Alive One or get Alive Two. I would send them there first. Or if somebody never heard Cheap Trick, I'd say get Cheap Trick at Budokan. I wouldn't say that with Live at Last. As I said, I've never heard any Ozzy or Black Sabbath album. I would say the first one you got to get is Live at Last. Yeah, no. <laughs> that band sucks. No, they probably wouldn't say that, but it wouldn't be a fair representation. Right, exactly. So it's 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 for the fans. Fans enjoy it uh, for for what it is. I think everybody understands that it's. We're glad it's here as a historical document. Uh, we wish they had put out a proper live album. If they had one or two proper live albums, then this would just sort of be like we maybe we wouldn't even be talking about it. It would just sort of be some 
another sort of like in the deep purple world where there's just numerous, numerous live yeah. albums. Uh, but since live Ozzy era Sabbath stuff is, is so uh, few and far between, we're, we're glad that it's out there. <laughs> yep, definitely. I wouldn't want it not to be have ever seen the light of day. And it's pretty cool. You know, I was thinking in the early 80s there when I was first getting into this stuff, it was like, I'm trying to get all the Sabbath albums and this is there and Ozzy's releasing Blizzard of Oz and then six months later, Diary of a Madman's coming out and then I turn around and Mob Rules is out and then I turn around and Live Evil's out. It's like back then every six months, every four to six months, <laughs> there was something new coming out and on top of me trying to get all the old albums and everything, it was just a really exciting time. So Yeah, and, and that was by no accident that these things were coming out so frequently. I, I think that both Ozzy and Black Sabbath were stimulating a lot of excitement. Um, certainly, well, Blues of Oz, that didn't really get catch steam until probably the following probably eight months or so. But so that was about 19, it was originally released in 1980, but by 1981, it had garnered a fair share of attention. Um, Black Sabbath, uh, Heaven and Hell, 1980. Yeah. I mean, that was definitely, uh, it was pretty exciting. Everything people were kind of excited about Dio joining. And, and I, I think the reception was fairly positive. Of course, there was always, and there still are, the people that reject it, think that only the Ozzy era is valid. Dio era was something else. They should have changed the name. But with these two components that were once part of a unit now releasing their own things, there was a lot more activity. And I think this activity definitely spurned, you know, or it spurred um, interest to the point where singles and Live at last, and old managers are coming out, digging up, unearthing these live albums and things like that. Because now it was a, it was a viable uh, uh, money making opportunity. You know, there there, there was an uptick of Black Sabbath related things. And you're already, so. All right. Well, yeah. I think that's going to wrap it up for us with our live at last episode. Uh, make sure you go over to. Our Facebook page, we are on Facebook, Into the Void, a Black Sabbath podcast. Uh, we'd like to thank everybody for listening to our past episodes. And uh, we will see you next time where we are going to pick up in our sort of moving along chronologically here with the studio albums. So we'll see you again soon with Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath. Sabbath, big one coming up. Yep. That's right. My number one album and uh, my number one Black Sabbath album, Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath. So we are... Looking forward to that. We'll see you all real soon. Thank you for listening and uh, take care, everybody.